And uh, it's worth turning in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2 as we continue this series in the story of Ruth, page 268 of the Church Bibles. And on the back of the service sheet is an outline of, uh, of uh, where we're heading as we look at that chapter together. Ruth chapter 2. Now they played for just over 11 hours of court time, some 183 games, 980 hard-fought points, serving down between them uh, 215 aces and only breaking serve three times. But at 4.48 on Friday afternoon, some two days after they had begun, John Isner finally overcame a somewhat stubborn opponent, Nicholas Mahou. Uh, They are two journeymen of tennis that probably would have disappeared again without a trace in this year's Wimbledon, but this was their moment. And John Isner will forever be remembered as that guy who won that match. Uh, Tell me, what is your John Isner moment? It it may not be an 11-hour Grand Slam tennis match, but what are you most proud of? Uh, What what is it in your life that you're hoping uh, at the end of your life as they're telling your story that that they mention this? Your finest hour. What was it? What is it? Some deed, some phase of life, uh, some pursuit that would reflect favourably on you, that would really show who you are to others. An hour of your life, a period of your life worth attention, worth credit, worth perhaps even reward. Was it perhaps in younger years, a gap year spent in a part of our world where there is great need and you felt like you were actually doing something? Is it the career that you're building or have built? Is that your finest hour? Or is it your family as you look around the dinner table and you see your children and you think, this is my finest hour? Or perhaps it's overcoming some great obstacle or holding your family together in a time of sadness. What is your finest hour? Or how about as a Christian, if you're part of this church family and you've been part of this church family for some time, uh, what is your big moment Worth our attention. What are you known for in this place? Is it great wisdom or tireless service or your care of others or your giftedness or that you're a great parent and others long to be like you? Or are you a coper in very difficult circumstances, a person of strong faith? Or as you look around, not so much at yourself, but those around you, what aspects of the lives of those sitting in the pews next to you are you envious of? Do you aspire to? That you see in them that's noteworthy, even perhaps praiseworthy. Well, today as we continue this story, the story of Ruth, who lived in Bethlehem some 3,000 years before us, we come to her finest hour an hour that will see her looked upon with great favour, an hour that will lead to rich reward. It's an hour in which already in chapter 1 last week we've seen her do remarkable things. We've seen amazing kindness that she has shown to her bereaved mother-in-law. We've seen her give up life in Moab, all that she knew to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. And now in this chapter we will watch her hard-working perseverance to keep this family afloat. She's a remarkable woman. And it's no wonder that she is often the poster girl for Christian women, someone to aspire to. I wish I was more like Ruth. But in chapter 2 we will be told that there is in fact one deed and one alone that has caught the eye of the Lord God. 
one deed that demands his repayment, his reward. Do you see it there in verse 12? Boaz, speaking to Ruth, says this, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Who is Ruth? Uh, What's her claim to fame, her her finest hour for which there is rich reward? Simple. Uh, She is someone who has come to take refuge under God's wings. That's her claim to fame. And throughout chapter 2 of this story, we are going to see why taking shelter under God's wings is such rewarding activity. In fact, why it is the only activity that brings God's favour, that the only thing that he rewards. And chapter 2 is going to tell us three things that we need to know if we're going to see that clearly for ourselves. And the first of them, and you can see this on the outline, is this, that if you're going to see that clearly, you need to know that there is a great need If you were here last week, uh, chapter 1 ended with Ruth and Naomi arriving in Bethlehem, arriving as desperate, destitute women. There are two women in desperate need. They are bereaved women. And Naomi, some three times in the last ten years, she has lost her husband and now she has lost her two sons and Ruth has lost her husband. And they're destitute. They've got nothing to show for their family, no food and no provider. And they're isolated. All the way through chapter 1, Naomi was at pains to tell us that there's no other family, there's no other husband or sons, no one can come to our rescue here. Or so it seems. And they're at risk. Did you notice as Ruth chapter 2 was being read, the, the constant reference to danger that lurks in the background, potential harm. They're like two broken ships that are limping back into a harbour in in need of repair but no resources to do it. Naomi, uh, as we watched her in chapter 1, spiralled down and down into a deeper depression and Ruth is left scurrying around for food amongst the leftovers. She's a Moabitess, a shunned nation in Israel, a a long way from home, a a foreigner seeking favour but with no real hope of finding it. The first thing you need to know about Ruth's finest hour is that she is a woman in desperate need. Here's the second thing we're told that we need to know in this chapter. You need to know that there is a great redeemer. Did you notice in Ruth 2 verse 1, before we're told anything about Ruth's situation further in this chapter, we are introduced to a new character. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now this changes things somewhat. Ruth and Naomi knew that they had a great need but they they also knew, or Naomi had had continued to say that there was no one who could meet that need. But what Ruth, Ruth didn't know and Naomi had forgotten was that there was a man who could redeem their situation, a kinsman, a relative, Boaz. And throughout this chapter we learn three important things about this Redeemer. The first is this, and you see it there in verse 1, he had the capacity to help them. We're told he is a man of standing, a, a word that literally means he was a commander of armies. Now Boaz didn't lead any armies, his armies were, were financial, he was a man of clout. A man of standing among the who's who of Jerusalem we see uh, in chapter 4. 
He's an owner of many fields, an employer of many servants. He's a man of capacity. He's a man that we'll see in this chapter who, who has authority. When he speaks, when he makes a command, things happen. He's a man who very much lives up to what his name means. Boaz means full, strong. And he's not just strong in wealth and power, he's a godly man. And one of the wonderful things about this story that's so brilliantly and carefully written is there's so much detail sewn into every verse, uh, giving us important information about the characters. Do you see it there in verse 4? A seemingly redundant uh, bit of information as Boaz steps onto the scene for the first time into his harvest field and we're given the insignificant detail of his greeting to his workers. There's only four chapters in this story. You'd think you'd be wanting to conserve words and yet the author splashes out here. He says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, they called back. Here we have this man of great capacity, this potential redeemer, who the very first words he says are words of blessing. Words calling upon God to care for his workers. Here is a man of gratefulness, of wealth, of power, of blessing, a man who can help. And secondly, he is obligated to help them. Boaz has to help Naomi because it's the law. Uh, firstly because Ruth has taken initiative. Do you see it there in verse 2? She has made the plan and Naomi has agreed to it. I'm going to go out into the fields and I'm going to seek favour, seek someone who might help us, might provide some food for us. She goes out in search of favour and she finds herself in the field of Boaz. And as soon as she does, the command that God has given Boaz and all his people is triggered. The command to any farmer uh, in God's land to show special concern for the poor and the needy and the marginalised. In fact, Leviticus says that anyone who owns a farm like that needs to deliberately harvest their farm so that they leave an area around the edges for anyone to come, even the foreigner, to come and glean that they may survive. And so Ruth, finding herself in Boaz's field, finds herself bound to him. Boaz is obligated to help and again a further testimony to his godliness, he obeys that command and an obedience that is rare amongst God's people, the Bible tells us. But there's another obligation altogether. And the first hint of it is, is dropped for us in uh, verse 1. He is a relative of Elimelech, a relative of Naomi's husband, a relative of Ruth, the father in, whose father-in-law is Elimelech. And then the hint comes again, in case we've missed it, in verse 3. He's part of this family. And then by verse 20, uh, the, the, the writer, the storyteller, is dropping all hints and he's just saying it plainly. Verse 20, when Ruth returns from the field at the end of the day, Naomi says with excitement, that man is a close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? It's a phrase that God has brought into being because out of his love he has commanded his people that they must act as kinsman redeemer for family members. Each family, a member of a family had the obligation to protect and provide for anyone in their family who fell into great need, who was destitute. It was the way God wanted his people to live. They needed to provide in such a way that that person was redeemed to full life again. If their land had been sold, you'd buy it back. If they were in slavery, you buy them out. 
Boaz knew his obligation. It was much more than to some stranger, some foreigner. He was Ruth's kinsman, redeemer. And in verse 8, you see that redemption starting to unfold. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls and watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after them. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. The great Redeemer says, stay with me. You've no need to go anywhere else. All the favour you need you can find right here. Stay right here. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. I will comfort you. He has the capacity to help. He's obligated to help. And then there's this, the best bit of all. He redeems Ruth because he loves her. You see, Ruth is a love story. I've got to be honest, I usually avoid love stories, but this is a good one. Can you imagine the moment? Have a look at verse 4. When Boaz arrives at his farm, uh, surveying his empire, surveying all the workers, uh, used to this scene, and then all of a sudden something catches his eye. The corner of the field, there's something out of place, this woman. And wow, who is that, he says. Or more accurately, uh, in verse 5 he says, who's she with? Who's, who she belong to? She must be spoken for, surely. I mean, look, wow. Tell me about her, he says. And so his foreman does. Uh, no, she's not married, but don't get your hopes up, Boaz. Uh, she's a Moabite, a foreigner, not our type. Forget her. She's come back with Naomi. She's a beggar. She's got nothing. She's been at it all day and she's got hardly anything to show for it. Let's just get back to business. But I love this. Do you see the very next verse? Verse 7. The picture I get is halfway through this speech from the foreman. Boaz has stopped listening. His eyes are fixed and he's hot-footing it across the fields to this woman on the edges. And he catches his breath and he begins his redemption. And wow, does he lay it on thick. And we've already seen in verse 8 and 9 how he meets the obligation to this foreigner, to his kin. But... This is no letter of the law of obedience. This is over-the-top, spectacular obedience driven by a heart-thumping, growing love for this woman he has just met. As the chapter goes on, Boaz moves well beyond anything that would be asked of him. It's excessive, gracious, lovesick provision. You see it there in verse 14. He says, forget about gleaning on the edge of my property. I know that's what I'm obliged to let you do, but come and sit at my table. Join this feast, taste the food, drink the wine. Such is his excessive generosity that she has so much to eat that she has to wrap it up in a doggy bag to take back to Naomi. She can't fit all the generosity in. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 15, as she gets up, he gives orders for, for them to leave great chunks of the harvest for her. And so by verse 17, as she gathers everything up, can you picture this? Over 20 litres of grain. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This woman who came to the field with nothing in great need staggers home, overflowing with blessing. All of Boaz's strength, all that he has, all that he is, is turning its attention on Ruth, who staggers home full. That's a great story. Some argue that's the best story of any age, of any literature. And we're only in chapter 2. It's a story that begins so very darkly and yet by now is getting brighter and brighter by the verse. 
everything is working out. And just wait for what's yet to come in the coming weeks. But here's a question for you. As good as a story as it may be, does it not leave us with a big so what on our lips? It's a nice story, but what has this got to do with me in sunny England on this vital World Cup day some 3,000 years after this love story? So what? Well, if you're thinking that way, then you've missed the hints that the master storyteller has been dropping all through this chapter. Hints that something much bigger is at play than some happy coincidence, than some wonderful romance. Did you see the hints? They start in verse 3. As it turned out, we're told, she just happened to find herself in Boaz's field. And wouldn't you know it, verse 4, Boaz, who has other people to work for him, wouldn't need to go to his field very often, just so happened to be there on that day at that time. Something much bigger is at play here, some plan beyond the decisions of Ruth and Boaz. We're meant to watch these events and start to ask, what is going on here? We're meant to step back from this scene, like some collage. You're seeing here the pastoral scene in one field. We're meant to step back and back and back and back and see a much bigger picture. And when we do, we see that beyond the great redeemer Boaz is an even greater one. Beyond the kindness that Boaz is showing Ruth is a God whose kindness has brought these happy turn of events about. And as we step back from the scene, taking in more and more of his sovereign purposes being worked out here, we see what Naomi sees in verse 20 as she sees Ruth stagger home with all of this blessing. Do you see what she says in verse 20? Speaking of the Lord, not Boaz, she says, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. It's amazing words for for the woman that we met in chapter 1 who was so broken, so bitter, so empty, couldn't see how God was working and now this is her aha moment. She sees how all the twists and turns that led them away from Bethlehem and back again to this field, all has come about at the hands of a God who has never ceased to show his kindness and what's more, that kindness is directed at her of all people. Beyond this pastoral scene of Ruth and Boaz is a much, much bigger picture of our great Redeemer. And here's where we come in. Here's the so what. Here in this moment, in this field, in Bethlehem, God is plotting for your good. Sitting here this morning, he is making plans for his favour, not just to rest on one person, Ruth, but on his whole world. In time, these two, Ruth and Boaz, will marry. In time, God will give them a child and his name will be Obed. And as the story ends, uh, the future of this child's family is unfolded before us. You can see it there in chapter 4, verse 21. I'll give the game away already. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. This is the family that had come to the end of the line in chapter 1. And as the family tree is picked up again for us in Matthew's Gospel where God shows how he has sewn all the threads together through to Boaz, through to Obed, through to David, this is how it continues all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. Here in this field, in this simple scene, God was plotting your good. 
making plans to have his favour rest on you. The day that Christ was born, did you hear it in Luke chapter 2? The day he was born, all heaven shouted, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to anyone on whom his favour rests. In that field, God was making plans for the arrival of his kinsman redeemer who will say in Luke 4, Now is the year of the Lord's favour. You see what happens when you see the hints and you take a step back? It's a bit like seeing one of those movies. I don't know whether you've seen the movie The Usual Suspects or something like The Sixth Sense where you think you're following the story and then right at the end something happens and you go, oh, that changes everything. And you have to take a step back and trace your way back through the story to see what was really going on. Well, let me encourage you to look back as we come towards a close over this chapter again. See what God is really doing here. For this is your story as much as it is Ruth's. In fact, the whole scripture testifies that as you look at Ruth's great need at this destitute woman, you are actually seeing a picture of yourself. What do you think your greatest need is? If you're struggling with health, whether it be a temporary thing or a serious ongoing problem, maybe that's your greatest need. Or is it relational? A broken relationship that you long to see repaired or perhaps it's just a relationship full stop that you long for. Or a job. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you think, I have no great need, I am content. Well, the Bible says different. There is a great need in your life and it is none of those things. It is an immense need. You are out of relationship with your God, out of his favour. The Bible declares to us very clearly again and again that there is a God who sustains all things, that in him all things hold together, that the sun rose today, that you took a breath of air just then is because he is in charge. And he's going to decide how many you've got left, that is breaths. Although he made us and although we enjoy everything that comes from his hand, we neither acknowledge him or give him thanks. Instead we live self-determined lives, the sort of lives we saw last week with Elimelech and his family. Our great need comes about because God says that's not okay. Our great need comes about because God is the king and he is just and he will judge and that's a problem, leaving you and I with a very great need. And here's how much your situation echoes that of Ruth's. Do you know the word the Bible uses to describe us? powerless, without resources. The great need, uh, the great human need to have our relationship with God restored, to be forgiven, well, we don't have the resources for that, even if we wanted to. I reckon that's hard to hear Uh, because most of us, and especially in an area like this, we always think there's a way back. We always think there's capacity within us or those around us to fix the problem. We can do people Well, not this time. You have a great need and no resources to deal with it. But here in this story, in this field in Bethlehem, God is plotting a way to redeem you from your situation. He's going to meet your great need with a great saviour. And let me tell you briefly about this saviour. Here is a man who has the capacity to help. If meeting our need hung on us or if it was about fair play, we would have no chance. But 
What we need goes well beyond those things. We need grace and this one, Jesus, is full of grace. He is a man of standing, verse 1 says. The one for whom, through whom and by whom all things hold together. The one who has risen from the dead, who has conquered it, kicked it to pieces because it was impossible for anything to hold him down. He is a man of standing. He can help. And he's a man obligated to help. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Jesus obligated to help you? Well, of course not. It's he who we have rejected. It's he who made us, who provides our every breath. It's he who will judge us and yet he obligates himself to help. He becomes one of us. He comes to earth as a baby. He is born as a man. He becomes your kin, your brother, Hebrews says. And all of a sudden he is your kinsman, redeemer. Amazing. He has the capacity to help. He is obligated to help. And then there's this, the best bit of all. He redeems you because he loves you. And he hasn't just run across a field. He has come from heaven to earth to make that clear. His love is even more extravagant than Boaz's. The dimensions of it are so immense that even if you tried to take in the depth and width and height of it, you couldn't. He loves you. And if you want proof, if you want to know that that's not just some sort of hyperbole, then look at the cross. See the man there whom you have betrayed, whom you have lived as if he wasn't there. See him love you enough to give himself for you. Love, him, love you enough to deal with your great need. His cross says to you, not only that he loves you, he doesn't just say it, he doesn't just show it, he loves you in a way that everything changes. The picture of Ruth at the end of this chapter is staggering. A woman so full of blessing she can hardly walk home and yet that is you and I with the Lord. His favour rests on you both now and for eternity. And as we finish, uh, let me suggest this last thing. We'll look at this more next week. Not only do you need to know your great need, not only do you need to know your great Redeemer, you need to know how to respond. You see it there again in verse 12. Why should God meet your need? Why should God reward you in some way? Why should he offer you what you need from him? What have you got to bring to the table? Well, only what Ruth offers... She has taken refuge under God's wing. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of someone who is about to be repaid and rewarded by God, but she's not an employer-employee sort of relationship. It's a giant eagle and a tiny little eaglet. That's who we are. God rewards those who take refuge under his wing, not those who can think they can earn his favour. The way to respond to your great Redeemer is with great humility. Are you prepared to come to him that way? And perhaps more pertinently for many of us here in the church family, are you prepared to remain that way before him? Jesus, uh, speaking to people, the religious elite, people who would probably be here this morning if they lived in our time, says this of the Pharisees. He says, How often I long to gather you up as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. All the Pharisees had to do was become little chicks to say, I bring nothing to the table, Lord, but that they wanted to work for God's favour. They wanted to bring something. They wanted to justify themselves. It was too humiliating the other way. 
Well, let me ask you, what have you brought to the table in the last month? What have you done for God in this last month that would earn his favour? What is your finest hour this year as a Christian? Was it some great wisdom you imparted in a small group? Was it an act of tireless service? Was it visiting someone in great need? Was it the way you've used your gifts? Was it that you're a fantastic parent? Is it that you've coped under great trial? What is your finest hour that God may reward you? Well, if it is anything other than this year you continue to take refuge under his wing, if you have moved on from being an eaglet to something more substantial, more mature, more noteworthy, then apply to your heart this story again that you may know afresh your great and ongoing need and you may know afresh your great and ongoing redeemer and let that knowledge lead you to the astonished question that Ruth asks in verse 10. At this she bowed down her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you would notice me a foreigner? God's answer to Ruth and to us is clear. It's because you were in great need, far beyond your resources, because I am your Redeemer who loves you and gave himself for you and because you have done the one thing I reward. You have flown out of fear, out of desperation, out of having nowhere else to go under my wings. And when you do and when you remain there, your Redeemer, your God, applies all that he has and all that he is towards your blessing so that like Ruth, you stagger home full. Let's pray.